the scripture reading this evening will come from Psalms chapter 78 verses 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Welcome. Glad that you're here tonight and to be able to worship with us as the church that meets here at Dalreda. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you come back. If you're just passing through, we hope that you have safe travels uh, wherever you go back to. Uh, Before we begin our lesson tonight, let's pray together. Lord our God, we come before you tonight thanking you for everything that you have done. We thank you for your wonderful works and your mighty deeds. Thank you for the rain that you have sent, which is a reminder of the same way you nourish the earth is how you nourish us as your children. Be with us tonight as we study your word. Help us to write it on the tablet of our hearts and share it with others. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray all this to you in his name. Amen. The title of our lesson tonight is The Exodus. Uh, Very recently, I was doing a study of Jeremiah chapter 31, and there's a passage in there where it talks about uh, the new covenant that God was going to make with his people. Reflecting back over what he had already established with Abraham and the descendants from there, he talks about a new covenant that he's going to write on the hearts of men, and it'll be within men. And we're very familiar with that. Those of us that are Christians, those of us that have accepted the, the word of God for what it is and have allowed that to make changes in our life. But I noticed that there was a phrase in his description, Jeremiah, as he was receiving this prophecy from God. In Jeremiah chapter 31, as God is describing this, God looks back over that covenant and he said, I want you to remember the time that I led the Israelites out of of Egypt by my hand. It was that statement by my hand that I started reflecting back over the Exodus. And as we study tonight, I want to give you that buzzword. I want you to think about that as we do our study the hand of God. Now, there's a lot that we're not going to be able to cover tonight. There's a lot to the story, and there's an entire book that we could do a whole study from, and we're not going to have time to do that tonight. But I would encourage you in your own personal studies to go back and read that, uh, that book together with your family or independently. And I want you to highlight, I want you to make mention of every time you see the word hand mentioned. I want you to do is some personal study, and I will guide you through a bit of an understanding tonight. And that's what we're going to focus on as we think about the Exodus. I want to think about what did the Israelites think of when they went back to this story. We read tonight from uh, Psalm chapter 78. I like 78 because it gives you a condensed history and a rendition of what happened to the Israelites, going back to when they were led out by God. And it's a beautiful piece of poetry as you read through that psalm, and they're looking back over these great things. It's those first four verses, and right there, the verse four that tells us what they were focused on, the things that God has done. Maybe if we were going to ask a Jew, what do you think about the Exodus? You know, would they just give us a historical rundown of here's what happened? So we were in, you know, our descendants, they were, they were there. Uh, they were in Egypt, and they were there for 430 years, and they start going through it, or they, would they rather talk about, you won't believe what God has done? I think if you start looking at some of the historical accounts, 
through the Bible of when they reflect back on the Exodus, they make mention of what God did. It's not so much just giving you a historical background of where they came from, but it's more to do with what did God do. And it's that phrase that I found in Jeremiah chapter 31, and one that we'll trace all the way through uh, the first half of the book of Exodus, is the hand of God. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Exodus. Let's start in chapter 1 and start reading there. In Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 6, it says this, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, as I said, they were in Egypt for 430 years. You can look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, and you will see that they were there for 430 years. That's a lot of time, and that's a lot of growth. Where they start off the very book of Exodus with talking about how great that they were, that the whole land was filled with them. Now, if you look back over this historically, and I think this needs to be mentioned, it seems like God was preserving them in this place. You see, there was not a lot of mixing and mingling between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It's a whole different scene than what you find the Israelites doing when they get to the land of Canaan. When they get to the land of Canaan, they are accused of intermarrying with them, not just uh, husband and wife intermarrying that way, but they allowed their gods to become their own gods. You see, they mixed and they mingled, but it seems like when they were in Egypt that they were preserved. You don't find this integrating of the Egyptian gods with the Israelite idea of a monotheistic God. There's something unique about them being preserved in this time for them to grow into a whole nation. As they are preserved in Egypt, God is increasing them and he's preparing them. It's said that the the Egyptians, that they didn't think a lot of herding sheep. And that's one of the main things that the Israelites would do. And I think because of that, they were considered a bit of an abomination. Furthermore, when you continue to read on in the book of Exodus, as it talks about some of the sacrifices they may offer, Moses makes an argument towards Pharaoh, and he says, if we were to offer our sacrifices here, it'd be an abomination to you. It seems over and over again that God made sure that they were in the right place at the right time to be preserved until they could become an entire nation. I want you to think about that a little bit more. Why would God want to prepare them as an entire nation before the rest of history sets into play? How had God operated up until this point? God would speak to individual people, giving them promises at a time. What led them to Egypt is starting with Abraham, where God said, I will give you a nation. I will give you a people. I will give you a land that you may dwell there, and it may be yours, and I have given it to you. As Stephen is reflecting back over this in Acts chapter 7, verse 17, he looks back over this story and he says, As the time for the promise of Abraham to be fulfilled came near, God appeared to Moses. God was preserving them in this time until it was time for the promise to come to fruition. You see, before this, God had spoken to various individuals, giving them leadership and ideas until he gets to the point where he is going to be the God of a nation. He had been a God of a a small group of people, but an entire nation. Now think about the Israelites in the midst of the Egyptians. The Egyptians had many different gods, and their Pharaoh sat on a throne, and he himself was the very central focus point between the gods and men. 
It's said that if you were to look at the pyramids, these great tombs of some of the, the pharaohs, that as they come to a pinnacle, the reason why pharaohs were buried in such a way is because it was to show that they are the ones that would connect men with God. So a pharaoh would sit on the throne as a god. And what you're going to find as we continue through this story, it doesn't have to do so much with a man as much as it has to do with the hand of God. And I think because of that, the Israelites were able to grow, and they were able to succeed. Even when opposition was put in front of them, if you continue in chapter 1, starting in verse 11, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You can't stop them. It didn't matter what the Egyptians did. They thought if we could suppress them, if we could bring them down, if we could make them see that they're not worthy really to be here, then they will lose their power. They'll lose their influence. But the further you press them, the more that you would squash them, the more that they would grow. Now, that doesn't happen unless the hand of God is involved. But more and more, they're being oppressed. Joseph has been out of the scene for many years. New pharaohs have come to light that didn't even know Joseph. They didn't understand what he had done. They didn't talk about it. And so it got worse and worse for the Israelites, where you get to chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and it describes it this way. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, I think that the writer here, I don't think if Moses is looking back over this and saying, God forgot us for 430 years. He was there with Joseph, and he just forgot about us until we started complaining. I don't think that's what he's trying to describe at all. That doesn't match the loving God. That doesn't match what Stephen said. God was waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. The time where a nation would grow, where it was solely dependent on a one true God, and it's come. And it's time for them to realize that God is at work. But God doesn't peek around from the shadows. He doesn't come around from a uh, corner and and gather all the Israelites together and say, all right, let's have a huddle. Let's, uh, Let's have a talk and let's tell you what to do. He goes out into the wilderness to find a man who had ran from the Egyptians. And he speaks to him from a burning bush. I couldn't come up with an idea like that to prepare my, you know, my, my special leader that's going to lead an entire nation. Let's appear to him in a burning bush. But don't worry, the bush won't burn. It'll really get his attention. Somehow God decided that's how I'm going to speak to him. And he takes Moses, the perfect middleman, to be his representative. A man that was trained in the, the words of the Egyptians, the deeds of the Egyptians. One that was brought up in a, a Jewish household that knew what was, uh, what was involved. So God appears to Moses. Moses, of course, shocked with the situation, doesn't understand what's going on. And, and he hears this, this plan that God said, I'm going to send you back to my people. And I want to tell them that it's time to go. You've been here long enough. It's time for the promise to be fulfilled. And you know Moses' response. Well, who am I going to tell him sent me? And you get into this 
almost a convoluted conversation between God and Moses. And in chapter three, verse 13, it says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people in Israel, say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if we were going to stop there, in 2018, and somebody has told us to go and tell them that I am. Excuse me, that's not how an English sentence is constructed. I don't know English very well, but I know that that's probably not the best way to go have a conversation with somebody. That I want you to go tell them my name is I am. It's like the first time that God introduces himself to his people. He says, go and tell them what my name is. The beginning, the end, the everlasting father. The one that created all things, brought all things into existence by the word of his power. He says, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. I think we take for granted the power that's really behind this, this one phrase, but it's really bound up in a single word for us. Yahweh. Related to a verb that means to be. God taking on the, that personal verb and applying it to himself, and he says, I am, that is my name, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that makes promises that he will defend. He tells Moses, you go tell them, I am has sent you. Not only by name will you recognize him, but what he does. If you continue reading in chapter 3, Starting in verse 19, he tells Moses, this is what you're going to have to do when you go back to Pharaoh. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Do you start to catch on what God is saying here? I'm going to lead you out by my hand. It's going to take a mighty hand for the Egyptians to realize what's going on. But I also think a case can be made that the Israelites needed to see the mighty hand of God to understand the task that was put in front of them. The single representative, Moses, he even doubted what he was supposed to do. Remember how he talked to God and he says, hold on now, I'm not strong in speech. But he actually was because he was trained by the Egyptians. And Stephen looks back and he tells us in chapter 7, he was mighty indeed. In and in word when he was in Egypt. But Moses keeps coming back, and he's like, how am I supposed to convince this people that me as a single person am speaking on behalf of the one true God? I have your name, I have the one that you made promises, but furthermore, what shall I do? And God says, I will guide you. I think even the Jews had to see the mighty working hand of God. For them to be fully convinced that it's time to go into the wilderness, it's time to run away, it's time to get out of what had become home, they need to realize that God's hand is at work. Because when you continue reading that verse and you look over it again, that just doesn't happen randomly. That you have a group of slaves that are being oppressed in this nation, and by the end of whatever's going to happen, that people will give their goods to them and see them on the road. 
He tells them this is how you shall plunder Egypt, is that they will give you their stuff. Usually plundering has to do with overcoming and taking and, and uh, you know, raising a place. And he says, you will ask, they will give. You're plundering the place. That doesn't happen unless a mighty hand is involved. Now, the scene gets worse back at home. As Moses is receiving all these teachings and all these things and his training course in the wilderness with God, back in Egypt, starting in chapter 5, looking at verse 1, it says this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Wait, hold on. So it's one thing that you can go convince your people that I am sent you. But when Moses and Aaron that came from the wilderness and came right into the throne room of Pharaoh, the one who sits on the throne of a God, and they come in and they say, you need to let us go. I don't know this Lord that you speak of. I don't know this I am. I don't know this Yahweh. I'm not even going to let you go. I wonder if Moses and Aaron walked away from there and they thought, okay, you'll see. Let me give you a few chances, though. Because how many plagues do we go through? How many different signs, how many different wonders does God have to do for the Egyptians to realize that this is not man's doing, this is something more? Not only do we have the 10 main ones, but we have many other things that Moses was doing, like sticking his hand into his coat and pulling it out, and it's leprous and putting it back and it's healed, or a staff that's thrown down. And these things over and over again, they just won't believe it. It's going to take a lot of work. But God is prepared for this. In chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. Now, let's think and let's connect a few phrases. We just read this same thing that God said, I will use a strong hand and I will lead you by a strong hand. But now you find that it's Pharaoh that's going to do it. I think what we start realizing throughout this story is exactly how powerful God is. Because it's not that he just appeared out of the, the sky, and it's not that he spoke out and he says, I'm about to send lightning down, or I'm about to send this down, or do this, or do this. But he sends a representative to work on his behalf. He sends him into the throne room of a man who supposes himself to be a God. And God says, I can use you exactly where you are. Sure, I will lead my people out by a strong hand, and you're going to do it for me. It takes a lot of convincing. It takes a lot of power in order to do that. And I think that's what's unique about this story. You continue reading in chapter 6, starting in verse 7. He says, I will take you to be my people, God speaking of them. He says, I'll take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. 
You ever seen somebody get so far down, so broken, so destroyed, that even sound wisdom, even something right there in front of their face isn't convincing enough? Someone that you just want to pick up off the ground and say, if you would just turn your vision from being down, if you would just look up, you will see that there's more. Israelites, they're as far down as they possibly can be. They don't know which way to turn. They know that they had called out to God, and, and it wasn't this great, powerful thing that maybe they expected. It wasn't this great showing that they had anticipated maybe that it was a man, really two men, Moses and Aaron coming before them telling them, look, God's with you. If God is with us, why are we so broken? Why are we so down? If God has made all these promises, why are we feeling like this in this land? They need a convincing too. So I think this is why we get to the, the plagues. I think this is why God chooses to do what he does. In chapter seven, starting in verse one, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother and Aaron shall tell uh, Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. I don't know what it would feel like in this moment. I don't really know what feeling you would interject in here on behalf of Moses. Do you think he feels frustrated? you think he kind of wanted to say something to God of like, I told you that they weren't going to listen to me. Pharaoh wasn't going to do anything. I wonder if he was frustrated. I wonder if he was excited. All right, God, when are you going to do these things? Look, we've, we've been oppressed. Our people are broken. When will you lead them? You're talking about this mighty hand. When will you reach it down and pull them up? I don't know what Moses was thinking. I wonder what Aaron was thinking. I'm speaking on behalf of Moses, and I don't really know what's going on. He's having these conversations with an I am, and I'm not really sure. I wonder what the, the elders of the Israelites were thinking. Who are you that you would come into our presence? We know you. You were trained in the, the household of Pharaoh years ago. I know you. You ran away after you killed an Egyptian. And now you want to rule over us? You're the one that says that God's going to have this mighty hand. He's going to do these great deeds, and yet here we are. I wonder what Pharaoh was thinking. Who is this person that even th that thinks that he's in charge? But it's that beginning in chapter 7. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, this was not to elevate Moses further than what he should be. This was for him to acknowledge all power to the one that was in charge. He will be like God. When you see him, you understand that something is the driving force behind him that allows him to say and do the things that he does. There's a driving force behind him. 
It's almost like the, the hands of God are working him and putting him where he needs to be. Telling him, you go here, you do this. Well, the situation gets charged further. It wasn't the beginning works. It wasn't the smaller things that the Egyptians were able to, to conjure by their magicians. But you start seeing these big plagues coming through. Now, the first two, for whatever reason, the magicians of the Egyptians were able to do the same thing. They were able to turn water to blood. They were able to have frogs come out of the sky. But I think their tricks ran out. You get to chapter 8, and it's the gnats. I want you to read, starting in verse 18. It says, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on men and beasts. But pay attention to verse 19. The, magi- the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That mighty hand of God that's going to reach down and, and, and lead them out, the mighty hand of God that's going to reach down and, and pull Pharaoh or instruct him or do this or do this, the hand of God extends the finger of God to cause the plagues to happen. Where even the Egyptians look back on it and they say, there's something going on here that we have no power to do. Not the full grasp of God, but just a touch of his hand. The same phrase Jesus uses in Luke chapter 11 when he's having a a debate with the Pharisees. They're challenging him, how are you able to do the works that you do? You must be powered by Satan because you cast out demons. Jesus looks back on them and he says, okay, that makes sense. If I cast out demons by the power of Satan, then who do your disciples cast out demons by? But if Satan cast out Satan, then what power does he actually have? A house divided cannot stand. But if by the finger of God, but if by the power of God, by the finger of God I cast out demons, then know that the kingdom of heaven is near. You think that these works are great. You think of casting out a demon. You think of just gnats appearing on people or something. This is just the finger of God. Wait until you behold his whole hand. You see, the Egyptians started picking up on it. In the seventh plague, starting in uh, chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder in hell. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. It got to the fact where even Pharaoh knew who the Lord was. But he still hardened his heart. The hand wasn't enough. The finger wasn't enough. He still hardened his heart. But there was enough of an understanding that he's able to say, it's my fault. I have sinned. You're right. I haven't done something. I'll let you go. Just make him stop. That's only in plague seven. Eight, nine happen. But we know where the story goes. It's the tenth one. Now, there's a lot of death that's happened over these number of days. Animals have died. People are starving. The the land is laid barren. There's nothing. Darkness was there. There's nowhere to turn. Everything is, is hopeless. 
Things are beginning to turn. The Egyptians are suffering and the Israelites are succeeding and all these things are happening around them and the Egyptians don't know why, but they're starting to pick up on it. You're causing all this. You're a menace. The Israelites, you need to get out of here. The people are also, you know, they're pleading the Pharaoh, let them go. We can't handle this anymore. Things are dying. Nothing is succeeding. And still he won't let them go. It's the 10th plague. All the firstborn. Now, I want to stop here, and I want us to put ourselves in that night. God's already told them the firstborn's going to die. He's told the Israelites, you go in your house and you kill a lamb. You put the blood on the doorpost and on the lentils. You go inside and you wait. You put all your clothes on. You put your shoes on. You prepare your food, and you wait. I think you really get the situation in chapter 12. Starting in verse 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. I really want you to think of you sitting in your home knowing that it was the Lord that was doing this, and all around you, you hear chaos. Family after family is waking up and finding dead in their home, and you're sitting there waiting because God told you to. You're hearing all the things going on around you. What are you thinking? What are you thinking as you're sitting there and, and you have had this meal together and you know that you're about to leave? What are you thinking? What has that taught you about God? What has he prepared you for that if you did what he told you to do, you would be saved? Everyone else is weeping. Everyone else is, is crying, but you are there with your family and God has provided for you. What does that tell you about people that are on the other side that don't get God's power? What does that tell you about you and yourself and what God is able to do for you? I think that's why the Passover meal had such great power is because they considered what it felt like to be with God and what it was like being on the outside. I think similar things could be said for Noah and his family as they heard the cries of people as the floods came on. Anytime that, that God had to punish people and give them consequences for their sin, I think we get a a glimpse of how bad it is on the outside of God. The last thing that we realize in this story, when they leave, God leads them out. And he takes them to the edge of a sea. The Egyptians are approaching, the armies are chasing them down, and they wait. And they think, we're going to be destroyed. We've come this far. We've left and seeing all these things, and we've come to, the, to a hurdle. Not even a hurdle. We've come to a backstop, and we can't go any further. Moses looks at the people in chapter 14, verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Stop striving. Stop complaining. See that God's hand is the one that has led you here. And what does Moses do? He stretches out his hand. The waters part on the left hand and on the right hand. The people overnight are able to walk across on dry ground. And we end the story, and we end our idea of the Exodus tonight in verse 30. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day 
from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What did God teach the Israelites in the Exodus? Did he teach them to tell a story, a narrative of where they came from? Or did he teach them to hold to his hand? He's able to save. He's the one with the power. The hand of the Egyptians failed. The hand of man will consistently fail. But the hand of God will succeed. I've mentioned Stephen as he reflects back over this. He tells this story, but by the end of it, he tells us that God doesn't dwell in places made with men's hands. He dwells in a place that he created. And we too can be there if we will acknowledge that his hand is not too short that it cannot save, nor his ear too dull that he cannot hear. But our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God. No one can snatch us out of his hand, but we can allow our sin to separate us. The, le- the lesson that we learn from the Egyptians and from the Exodus is, will you hold to his hand? If you want to do that tonight, you have the opportunity. You can hold to God's hand and let him lead you through life. You can die to yourself. You can put your, uh, your woes to the side. You can put your strength to the side. You can die to yourself and you can be buried with Christ and walk in the newness of life, holding to the hand of God. Or you can reject it. You can reject his power and his might. And sadly, there are going to be people that will be in the place that God doesn't dwell. But as for us that are Christians, we look for that moment. And if you need to be encouraged, you need to be strengthened with that, let us do that for you. If you need to make the decision tonight to hold to his hand, do it as we stand as we sing. tender voice obeying bear his yoke his burden take find the yoke his hand is on you laying light and easy for his sake he Yeah.
Let's pray together. Dear God and Father, we are grateful that you've allowed us to be in your presence, that you've allowed us to call you God and Father, 